Well, I'd first like to say, uh, uh, acknowledge the work of our brother Ed Burningham, who, if you know him, he goes to Cache Valley Bible Fellowship, and he's our dear friend and brother, and he made this wonderful pulpit for our use here at All Saints Church, so I think it's absolutely beautiful. I'm going to have to get used to it, and I'm get, I get now to use my big Bible, <laughs> so watch out. <laughs> <clears throat> Let's turn together to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We're going to read the whole chapter. 27 verses. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged with him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of host of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sacrifice sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice. It will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, For two thousand and three hundred evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Ulai, and he called out and said, 
Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eye, eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, though not with his power. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people, and through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and the mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. For Lord, all the things that we do are to be done for your glory. And we pray now, Lord, as we turn to the scriptures of truth and as we spend time thinking about it together and discussing your, your scriptures that you gave to Daniel we pray that you would be glorified. You would be glorified in our attitudes as we approach the word. And also, Lord, you would be glorified by giving us understanding and causing our hearts to worship you through what we see here in the scripture. I pray that what you intend for us to know would be known. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to think and you would give us understanding and hearts to receive. Please help us as we wrestle through this difficult chapter. Lord, thank you for this time to be together as saints and to spend time in your word, a privilege that many people don't have. Help us not to take it for granted. We praise you and do this in your Holy Son's name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Google Earth is an amazing thing, isn't it? How many of you have used Google Earth before? That program, right, on the computer and the internet? They say that 
that program gives you the opportunity to go and see anywhere in the world, right? Have you ever done that? You, you have the opportunity to literally go any place you want in the world and to look around and to wander around. And what do you do? You go and look at your own house, <laughs> right? <laughs> You can go see any place in the whole world. And what do we do? We go and look at our own house as if we haven't seen that a million times, right? They say if you don't want to try skydiving, just zoom in on Google Earth really fast. <laughs> and you'll get an idea of what that is like. Why am I talking about Google Earth? Well, I'd like to raise a parallel between Google Earth and the book of Daniel. And like the visions of Daniel, Google Earth starts with a bird's eye view of the Earth, right? You start with a bird's eye view, and then as you zoom in, then you get more and more details as you go. And you can focus on one place, and there you are with your bird's eye. So let's say you're, you're focused on Utah, and so you've got a bird's eye view of Utah there. It starts that way. And you zoom in, and all of a sudden, Salt Lake City appears, and Logan appears. And then you zoom in a little bit more, and all of a sudden, you see streets. And hey, there's Logan. There's the layout of the city. And then you zo zoom in even further, and all of a sudden, you do see your house. And you zoom in even further, and you're even able to go into a new mode where you can stand on the street itself, right? And you can look at your house as if you were looking at it in, as if you were there and as if you were actually standing there. But you're always seeing the same thing. You're just zooming in. You're seeing Utah, and you're zooming in, getting more and more details. And that's what Daniel's visions are like. And if you remember, when we, went to chapter when we were in chapter 2, I mentioned that chapter 2 was the fundamental prophecy, and that it's sort of the, the foundation or the base for all the other prophecies. Chapter 2 gives us an overview. It's, it's like a bird's eye view. There's really not a lot of details in chapter 2 at all. Uh, Daniel sees that the kingdoms of men are going to run their course, and after that, the kingdom of God is going to be set up. And that's really much of the details that we receive, a little bit more. But it's an overview. But then when you get to chapter 7, it's kind of like on Google Earth. You've zoomed in a little bit more. You're still looking at the same thing, but God gives Daniel more details about that very same thing, the establishment of the kingdom of God after these four kingdoms run their course. But we have new details. We are introduced to... Uh, the theological nature of those kingdoms, and we're introduced to this little horn that's going to be persecuting the holy people. And as you get into chapter 8, we zoom in a little bit more, and we have more details about that little horn. And you zoom in a little bit into chapter 9 and into chapter 10 through 12, which is another vision. 10 through 12 is one. And then you get some, it's almost like you're standing down on the street. It's almost as if you're there uh, looking at what is happening in very explicit detail. But you can see that they're all talking about the same thing. And there are lots of connecting clues that help us see that they're all talking about the same thing. So when we approach chapter 8, we need to keep in mind that chapter 8 has obvious connections to what has gone before and to what is going to go afterwards. And we'll point out those clues as we look at this chapter. Surprisingly, chapter 8 is the last apocalyptic chapter in the book of Daniel. It's the last apocalyptic vision in the book of Daniel. And you might say, well, wait, no, doesn't Daniel have other visions after chapter 8? Yes, he does. He has two more. 
after chapter 8, there's the vision he has in chapter 9. And then there's the vision that he has in chapter 10, 11, and 12, which is one vision. But you'll notice that those aren't apocalyptic, because in those two last visions, basically an angel shows up to him and is just speaking to him and telling him very explicitly what is going to happen. There's no symbolism. There's no uh, goats and lions and, and bears and all these things and metal statues. The angels are just speaking bluntly and explicitly about what's going to take place. But in the apocalyptic genre, remember, we have symbolism that points to concrete realities, and it's a style of writing. And so this is the last time we have the apocalyptic genre in Daniel. And chapter 8 really is probably the best example of the apocalyptic genre that, you ha that we have in Scripture. If you really want to know what that genre is all about, chapter 8's the best because it gives us the symbols and it gives us the interpretations and a lot of the symbols are things that are not future but are past and so we're able to look at history and see how the symbols correlate to that and wow is it clear and so we're able to see really what apocalyptic genre is all about so this morning we're going to look at chapter 8 and in order to do justice to this chapter we're going to have to look at the prophecy as well as the history and we'll discuss also the purpose of this chapter. So we're going to look at history this morning and, and this, the details of the prophecy as well as its meaning and its purpose. So let's look at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Now the third year of Belshazzar, the king, is 550 BC. And for most of us, we would, nothing would ring a bell with that year, right? 550 BC. But here's the interesting thing about this particular year, why Daniel gets the, the vision at this year. It was in 550 BC that the Medo-Persian Empire was established. That was, that was the year that Cyrus, who had rebelled against the Medes, because the Medes kind of controlled Persia before the Medes and the Persians joined together, and Cyrus had rebelled, and it was in this year that Cyrus's rebellion succeeded, and he became the king of the Medes as well as the king of the Persians. So when he took over, he didn't just call himself the king of the Persians, he also called himself king of the Medes, and the Medes and the Persians joined together in one empire. So this was the year of the founding of the Medes, the Medo-Persian Empire, when they joined together. Now, this is happening elsewhere. Daniel is in Babylon, and this is happening somewhere else. And Babylon is still in control. Babylon is still the ruler over Israel and Jerusalem. But it's still a fitting time for Daniel to get a vision about the Medes and the Persians. Because this is no coincidence that this nation is now rising in the east. And this is, of course, the nation that's going to take over this Medo-Persian empire 12 years later. Twelve years after this event in chapter 8, we have the incident in chapter 5 when Belshazzar is slain and the Persians take over. So it's about 12 years before that. Verse 2, I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, it's important to notice that Daniel is not in Susa actually. Look at the verse. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, 
I was in the citadel of Susa. So Daniel is in Babylon, but when he has this vision, he finds himself in Susa. It's kind of like Ezekiel's vision. If you remember, Ezekiel was in Babylon too. He was part of the, the captivity, and he was in as an exile in Babylon. And when he had his vision, he was transported in the spirit back to Israel. He was transported in the spirit back there to see things that were going on in Israel. And so like that, Daniel is in the spirit in the citadel of Susa. This phrase, the citadel of Susa, means Susa itself. A citadel is a fortified city. That's what a citadel is. So uh, back in the ancient days, you had cities that weren't fortified, and you had cities that were. And this was one of those cities that it was surrounded by a, a, a great wall. And so it's called a citadel. Now, why is he in Susa? What's special about this place that the vision would take him there? Well, at this time in 550 BC, there's kind of nothing special about Susa at this time. But what's interesting is that the Persian, the Medo-Persians, when they start conquering, when they start heading west, they capture Susa and they capture all Babylon as well. They capture all other places and they make Susa the capital of their empire. They had a, they had a few ceremonial capitals of their empire. They, they kind of did that. They have certain cities that they all thought were important. But Susa was the actual administrative capital of the Medo-Persian empire. It would be. So it wasn't in the time of Daniel, but here's Daniel in this vision in Susa, a place that doesn't have any significance at that time, but he's, he's seeing that this place is going to be important in the future. This is where the Medes and the Persians are going to have their capital. If you, are, if you remember in the book of Nehemiah, where's Nehemiah at, in the beginning of that book? Where's Nehemiah when he hears about the, the Jerusalem is in ruins and he's broken and he's the cupbearer for the king of the, uh, Ahasuerus or Artaxerxes. He's the cupbearer and he goes to the king of Persia and he asks if he can go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Do you remember where he is? If you go there, we won't go there, but it, it says he's in the citadel of Susa. That's where the king of Persia had his business. If you remember the book of Esther, uh, and you've got the king, he has that party, he calls his wife, his wife doesn't come, he gets mad, he gets all these other girls, he picks Esther to be his, his new uh, queen. Where does that take place? That's also a Persian king. You remember where that takes place? At the citadel of Susa. So you see, Susa wasn't significant. No one would have guessed, hey, that's going to be the capital of the next great world empire, but in Daniel's vision, he's taken there. So this dream, or this vision, it's not really a dream, is it? Coincides with what is going on with the Persians and with uh, what God is going to do with them. He also says he's by the Ulai Canal. The Ulai Canal, or river, is a river that runs right by the city of Susa. I have a wonderful picture I found online um, that shows the... Uh, ruins of Susa, because right now Susa is just a place of ruins, which they found and excavated in 1901, and they found this fortified city with walls, and there it is right next to the river of uh, Ulai. It's a, it's a wonderful picture, and it really puts all of this in perspective. Why, why the river Ulai? Why the, he sees the ram, and he sees the goat here by the river Ulai. This place 
is important for God to show Daniel, not because a battle took place there, actually. Not because the, the, the Persians and the Greeks battled it out at the river uh, Ulai, but because of the symbolic importance of this place, this capital and this river because this was the capital of Persia. And when Alexander was done all of his conquering, when he went all the way to India and conquered it all, he came back to Susa and threw a huge party. Susa was the place where Alexander celebrated his great triumph. So this has symbolic importance. Verse three, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold a ram which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. Now turn with me to verse 20, and it's very clear what this symbol is in its concrete form. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. And all scholars, how do you disagree with that? There it is. The ram is the kings of Media and Persia, the two horns represent the fact that, like I said, the Medes were the ones who were first in charge, but then the Persians came up second, and the Persians ultimately were the ones that were the dominant, king, uh, the dominant side of that joint kingdom. So that's what the uh, symbol here represents. And verse 4 it says, I saw this ram, which represents the Medo-Persian Empire, budding westward. So this, went, this ram is in conquest. It's budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him. So he's conquering. There's other beasts in this vision that he's seeing, but this ram is trampling on them, and, and, and he's taking over. Nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he, as he pleased and magnified, or the Hebrew is, he was he became great. So this is exactly true to history. The Medo-Persian Empire moved west, it moved north, and it moved south. They conquered Babylon, they conquered all the way to the Mediterranean in their westward move. Then they moved south and they conquered Egypt, and they moved north and they conquered Lydia, which is modern-day Turkey. They conquered all that. And eventually they even went into Greece as well. It is God who gave the Persians their dominion. It says here, no one could stand before him. No one could be rescued from his power. And he did as he pleased and he became great. And what is the great theme of Daniel? We, should, we don't need to be told this explicitly anymore. We should know this, that God is the one who raises up leaders and nations. And God is the one who tears them down. It is only because of God giving Cyrus the victory that they were able to take over. And the Persian Empire became the greatest and biggest and even longest lasting at that time that the world had ever seen. The Persian Empire lasted about 200 years and no one could stand against it. No, it the, the, the dimensions of this empire was unheard of. Everything was small before the Persian Empire and then all of a sudden after that, everything was big. The Persian Empire, the, then the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire, everything was on huge scale after the Persians. God was in control and God used the Persians to, as he says in the book of Isaiah, he would raise up Cyrus, he would give him victory, and he would even use Cyrus to, to enable the Jewish people to return to the land of Israel after their captivity. So God was using them, and the Jews did return from the Babylonian captivity 
because of the Persians. Verse 5. So we see the victory of this ram, and then all of a sudden Daniel sees another creature in this vision. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. So this goat is just flying, basically. He's not, he's not walking, he's bounding. He's bounding that he's not even touching the ground. And this goat, this male goat, so the ram is obviously a male sheep, and here is a male goat, had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. Now who is this? Verse 21. Let's go to verse 21. We don't need to guess. The shaggy goat, or the male goat, represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So here comes the Greeks, bounding across the earth from the west, and he comes up to this ram in great anger. In verse 6 and 7, it shows how angry this goat is with the, sh- the ram. The first king, of course, is none other than Alexander the Great. And we'll see the details here. Now, this goat is really mad. And this is absolutely true to history. You see, as I said, the Persians spread west, and they spread south, and they spread north, and they conquered all these places. And then the Persians decided they wanted to conquer Greece. And so the Persians went into Greece. Darius I was the first guy to go into Greece. And he fought there, and it was really bloody, and there was lots of battles, and he was actually defeated. And then his son Xerxes wanted to go back and finish the job. And so Xerxes went in with even more people, and it was even more bloody and even more crazy, and he was also eventually uh, defeated. And this really ticked off the Greeks, and it gave the Greeks a real sour spot for the Persians, and they wanted revenge, and they were just boiling to get revenge. And finally, it was Alexander the Great who, who got everybody together and said, we're going to go, and we're going to take it, stick it to the Persians. We're going to get, get them. It's, this wasn't a, a, just an impartial conquest. They're not just saying, hey, let's go east. This is a revenge conquest. They're going to take down the Persians who had the audacity to step into their domain and to cause so much trouble. So it's true to history that the Greeks came flying across the West in great speed for revenge. And in verse 7, what is the, how, did they, how did this conquest turn out? I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So we hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. And that is exactly true to history. The Greeks came and were victorious over the Persians. And it was shocking how the Persians could not stand against the Greeks. Victory after victory after victory. And and it happened so quickly. In a matter of just three years, the the Greeks had decisively beaten the Persians. And before those three years, the Persians were enormous, were strong, and there was no intimation that they were going to be conquered. They had their armies. They had their forces. They had their securities. And they're thinking they're safe. And then all of a sudden, the Greeks come over and they win one victory. And the Persians say, "Uh uh-oh, we better do something about this. They send their armies to 
stop the Greeks. Alexander beats them. They say, oh my goodness, they send more armies. Alexander beats them, and they just cannot stop the advancing Greeks' armies. No matter what they do, it's just, it was, it was all in the favor of Alexander. Why? Was it happenstance? Was it just because Alexander had a bigger army? Actually, it wasn't true. Alexander's armies were even smaller than the Persian army. How did he get that victory? Why was it that no one could stand before this male goat? Why was it that the ram couldn't? It, it, the, the idea here isn't that there was a big battle, that it kind of went back and forth a bit. The ram just couldn't defend itself against this male goat. And the reason, of course, is because God was in control. And God was giving victory to Alexander over the Persians. And this is why he had his shocking victories. William Kelly says this about this section in Daniel. If you were to read history all your life, you could not have a more vivid picture of the Persian downfall than what the Spirit of God has furnished in a few lines. So here in this apocalyptic vision, as Kelly says, this, is, this about sums it up as good as it could possibly be summed up. This even captures sort of the essence of those days, what it was really like at that time. The Jews, in fact, showed Alexander this prophecy when Alexander came walking through Jerusalem, because Alexander made his way east, and he passed through Jerusalem, and Josephus tells us the marvelous story of when Alexander was approaching Jerusalem to destroy it. He was approaching Jerusalem to wipe it out because the Jews had actually sided with the Persians and not with the Greeks. Alexander had extended them uh, alliance and the Jews had rejected that alliance and said, no, we're going to stick with the Persians. They thought the Persians were going to last, strangely enough, in the light of this. But when Alexander came, they must have had a change of mind or something because then they went out there to greet him in peace and they showed him the prophecy and they said, here you are in the book of Daniel. And Alexander was thrilled about this and instead of destroying Jerusalem, he actually went to the temple and the high priest gave a sacrifice for Alexander and it was a big party. Just an amazing thing. Alexander was shown this. God is in control. Another interesting thing to note that Alexander the Great, as well as Cyrus the Great, the Persian, when he did his rebellion, and Xerxes, when he invaded Greece, they all were hesitant to do what they were going to do. They all weren't going to actually go. They were hesitating, should I invade? So Cyrus when the, Medes were, when the Medes were dominating per, uh, Persia and Cyrus was going to rebel against them, he was not sure if he was going to do it. He was hesitant. And Cyrus the Great had a dream that he should do it. That his god, or he thought it was from the gods, told him, yes, Cyrus, rebel against the Medes. You will be victorious. And so because of this dream, he did what he did. Xerxes, when he was hesitating, should I go back into Greece? Should I go conquest in Greece? Should I make a conquest in Greece again? He had a dream, and the dream in his gods, what he thought, came to him and said, yes, you should go. And Alexander the Great also had a dream that he would be victorious if he went against the Persians. It's interesting that all of these significant figures that did what they did, that caused all of these things to happen, were actually motivated by a dream that they had. And I think this demonstrates how God is truly in control and is even putting it into their hearts what they 
should be doing for his purposes to be accomplished. It's interesting. And Nebuchadnezzar also had dreams from God. And look at verse 8. Here's also, when we're looking at history, this is exactly what happened. The male goat magnified himself exceedingly, or he became great exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, no sooner did he get great, that the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And that is exactly what happened right after Alexander conquered the entire world. And Alexander is only 30 years old, and he did it in about 10 years. He took over everything, and he's got the whole world before him. He's at the height of his power. His kingdom extends from Greece all the way to India. And what happens to Alexander the Great? He dies. At the height of his power, as soon as he became mighty, he died. He fell sick, and he died. And his empire was, in fact, divided in the year 323 B.C. This is when Alexander died. His empire was divided to his four generals, his successors. So, once again, what an awesome prophecy God has given. Before these things ever happened, he lays it out crystal clear. Turn to Daniel chapter 11 and look at verse 1. And you'll see that this is actually repeated again in Daniel 11. This is the angel speaking. The angel says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I rose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. So the angels are really behind all of this. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. The fourth king in Persia is Xerxes. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. So here we have the fourth king, Xerxes. He arouses the empire of Greece against himself. That's Xerxes' invasion that ticks off the Greeks, and then they come against him. The mighty king of verse 3 is Alexander. But as soon as he has arisen in verse 4, he's broken, he dies, and his empire is divided. It says here, it gives us some more details on these horns in verse 8, that it wasn't to his posterity, it wasn't to his children. And that's exactly what happened. Alexander died, and his kingdom was not divided to his family, but to his generals. So we see in, verse, in chapter 8 and chapter 11, we're really talking about the same thing. Now these kingdoms, these four kingdoms, are still Greek. It was the kingdom of Greece that, the, that Alexander's uh, was the great horn that was a part of the kingdom of Greece. And then these four, these four other kingdoms were the divisions of the kingdom of Greece. And these four kingdoms were thoroughly Greek in nature. And it was because of them that Greek language and culture spread all over the world. And this was the very first time in history that there was a unifying culture and a unifying language. Because even under the Persians for 200 years, everybody didn't become Persian-like. 
There wasn't a Persianization. There wasn't the spread of Persian culture and language all over the world, and people wanted to get on board with that. The Persians actually kind of just tolerated everyone's religion. They provided an administration umbrella over everyone, but they let everyone have a lot of freedom. But with the Greeks, everyone wanted to be Greek. There was a process of Hellenization. Greek was cool. Greek was advanced. Greek was something that everyone wanted to be like. And so it was during this period of Hellenization that the world really began to change. Now we can look at that from the positive and the negative. On the positive side, this was a preparation for the gospel. Because when we get to the time of the New Testament, the apostles were able to write letters in Greek, which is one of the best languages to communicate in in written form. And also, it was the language that everybody spoke in their day. And so we can see how God was preparing the way for the world to receive the gospel. But on the negative side, this process of Hellenization caused a major problem in Israel. Because Israel is a different kind of animal than other nations, right? And the Hellenized ways didn't really fit with the Hebrew ways. It didn't mix with Israel. The Hellenized ways is pagan. Its, uh, its thoughts and its mythologies don't jive with the Bible. And so there was all sorts of conflict within Israel as many Jews wanted to Hellenize. And they said, yeah, let's, let's modernize. We're, our old ways are not good. And there were many that said, no, we have to stick with our old ways. We're a different kind of people. We're a set-apart nation. And these new ways are not good and they're not holy, and they're not appropriate for us. And so there was conflict, and this conflict climaxed in one of the most horrific chapters in Jewish history at the time of the Maccabees. And how many of you are familiar with this time of the Maccabees? You can learn about it in the Apocrypha if you read First and Second Maccabees, and of course Josephus and other people write about this time. Now here's the thing. Most scholars believe that chapter 8, as we go on now into verse 9, all the way to the end of the, chap- of the chapter, most scholars believe that what Daniel is seeing in this vision is the time of the Maccabees. And what they see here is that the little horn that arises in verse 9 out of one of those four horns, or one of those four kingdoms of the division of Alexander's kingdom, Most commentators believe that this little horn of verse 9 to the end of the chapter is none other than Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the eighth ruler of the Seleucid Empire. And the Seleucid Empire was one of the divisions of Alexander's kingdom. One of Alexander's generals that the kingdom divided to, his name was Seleucus. He was the one who had Israel given to him. Israel and that section of the world all the way to India, what we might call it Syria, although it extends beyond Syria. He ruled out of Syria. This was the Seleucid Empire. And Antiochus Epiphanes was the eighth ruler of that empire. And he was the man that was at the forefront of this Maccabean crisis. Antiochus Epiphanes was the eighth ruler. And what he, he struggled to kind of maintain his kingdom because the Seleucid Empire was, of course, it was the biggest of the four at the beginning, but it continued to diminish and diminish and diminish. And Antiochus tried to restore the greatness of the Seleucid Empire. 
And he saw Israel as a problem. He saw Israel as a thorn, as a weakening. And this, this place, Israel, which is a very strategic place in the world, the, the territory is very strategic, we have to have them unified with the rest of the empire in religion, in language, in culture. This Jewish thing just isn't going to work, this Hebrew thing. And so Antiochus forced upon Israel Hellenization. Whether you like it or not, we're going to change. Antiochus abolished the Torah. He burned as many Torah scrolls as he possibly could. He forbade circumcision. He forbade the keeping of the Sabbath. And if anyone was found reading the Torah, if anyone was found circumcising anyone, if anyone was found keeping the Sabbath, they would be uh, under the sentence of death. He forbade sacrifices to Yahweh in the temple. And he dedicated the temple to Zeus, the, the, the top Greek god that he worshipped, and he even sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple to Zeus. Antiochus was loyal to the gods of the Greeks, and he wanted to force Israel to become pagan. In verse 9, it says that he grew exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the beautiful land. So many scholars think, hey, this is talking about Antiochus, who made a campaign toward Egypt and made a campaign to, to try to get Egypt into the Seleucid Empire and also to spread east to try to uh, restore the greatness of the Seleucid Empire in the east as well as in the beautiful land. And look, it says in verse uh, 10, 11, 12, and 13, he's trampling the host. He's casting down the stars to the earth and trampling them down and magnifying himself against the commander of hosts or the chief of the hosts. Now this is language that should be interpreted as Israel. The host is a very common designation of the people of God. Remember, he's called God the, the Lord of hosts. And if you read in the, in, in the Torah, Israel is called God's host. And so what we're, we should understand verse 10 as the host of heaven is the holy people. The stars of heaven are the mighty people within Israel. Uh, I think that's what it says here in verse 24. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. So even in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel says, or excuse me, in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel describes the mighty ones in Israel as stars in heaven who shine brightly. So when you read this language of the stars of heaven being trampled and the host being trampled, this is this little horn persecuting and stamping on the holy people of Israel and the mighty ones therein. And in verse 11, he magnifies himself against God, the commander of the host. He removes the sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary is thrown down. That sounds just like Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did. And in verse 13, the angel even asks how long this trampling of the people and of the taking away of the sacrifice will be? And the answer is given explicitly in verse 14. He said to me, for 2,300 evening and mornings, which simply means days, if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, the evening and the morning, the first day. So 2,300 days, this sacrifice will be taken away until it will be restored. But why is this happening to Israel? Why is the host being trampled? Why 
is God allowing these enemies, this enemy, to destroy them and to do this and to desolate the temple? And what should we know implicitly is the case here? Because nothing is happenstance, God is in control, and history has meaning. Why is Israel being allowed to be trampled on? And of course, we all should know why. And what does it say here in verse 12? On account of what is this happening? On account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn. Because brothers and sisters, you need to remember when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And that covenant said, if you obey my law, if you keep this covenant that we make here, I will never allow any enemy to hurt you. So if Israel was to keep their covenant, and if Israel was to be righteous, and if Israel was to be faithful and obedient to God, it would actually be unjust and a covenant-breaking act on God's part for him to allow any harm to touch Israel at all. God threatens them, if you disobey, I'm going to cause enemies and nations to trample you, you'll be scattered. I'll even destroy this temple that has my name on it, and I'll cause the heavens not to rain, and I'll turn all your gardens into wildernesses. If Israel was righteous and God did that, God would be a liar and a covenant-breaker. But mark this, if Israel is unrighteous and God doesn't do that, if God doesn't punish them for their sins, even though, of course, he's patient and long-suffering and he calls for them through the prophets to change, but if he ultimately does not punish them for their sins, God would be unrighteous and a covenant breaker. And so we have to always understand this in light of the covenant God made with Moses and with Israel at Mount Sinai. It is because of transgressions that the people are being given over to the horn. And the same is said in verse 13. The transgression causes horror in the New American Standard. How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror? The horror is caused because of their violation of the covenant of God. It's interesting, the angels themselves want to know how long this would be. This is how important this is. Even the angels want to know how long this horror is going to last. This number, 2,300 years, is not to be interpreted in a figurative way. That would be a very weird figurative figure, wouldn't it? 2,300 years. It's exact. It's a set time, and it's a limited time. So God's punishment upon his people for their violation of the covenant, we can learn from verse 14, is set. It's not all willy-nilly. He doesn't just throw a punishment at them and then doesn't know what's going to happen in the end, doesn't know how long it's going to be. God says it's going to be a set time and it's going to be limited. It will not last forever. This punishment he gives to them will come to an end. That's a beautiful hope. And it's not just here in Daniel, but all the prophets who speak of God's wrath against Israel also promise, as well as they promise he's going to get you, he's going to punish you, he's going to destroy you, they also promise, usually right afterwards, right? God's going to punish you, but he's also going to bless you and save you and restore you and heal you. Now look at verse 15 and 16. The vision is now over. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me 
was one who looked like a man. So he sees a man before him, and then he hears a voice. It's not the voice of the man before him. I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Ulai, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So Gabriel is this man-looking thing that stands before him, and then the voice says, Gabriel, tell Daniel what this is all about. There's actually a word play here. In verse 15, the word man is not the common word for man. When it says, before me was one who looked like a man, the word is not Adam. The word is Geber, which actually means warrior or a, a warrior man. So a warrior man stand before me. And the word Geber is related to the word Gabriel. Gabriel means warrior of God. So this angel has the name warrior of God. So he's right, suddenly right before him stands this warrior man. The voice says, warrior man of God, tell Daniel the interpretation of this vision. This is the only place in the Old Testament that, the book of Daniel is the only place in the Old Testament that angels are named. And this angel, if you remember, is the same one that came, that came to Mary, to Zechariah in the temple to tell him about John the Baptist, and also that came to Mary and announced that she would be with child even though she's a virgin. So this same angel, we see angels don't get old. Same angel here in Daniel, and hundreds of years later, goes to, to Mary. The angel scares the daylights out of Daniel in verse 17. The heavenly things are very scary and not to be taken lightly. Amen? Often we take heavenly things lightly. But heavenly things are scary, and they're not to be messed with. This angel comes before Daniel, and Daniel maybe thinks he's going to kill him or something. He's a warrior angel, but... Gabriel actually comes to tell him the understanding. Now, I'd like to draw our attention here to the crucial thing in this chapter and about this vision. The voice tells Daniel to give, the voice tells Gabriel to give Daniel the understanding of the vision, and Gabriel comes near and says this to Daniel after he falls on his face. Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now when Daniel hears this, he notices that he's in a deep sleep with his face to the ground. Gabriel touches him and lifts him up and says, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. So when the angel approaches Daniel to explain this vision, the first thing that he emphasizes is that this vision pertains to the time of the end. And what we see here is that timing is a crucial thing for understanding this vision. God wants us to know when this vision is going to take place. It's going to take place at the time of the end, he says. He says that twice in 17 and 19. And it's going to take place, that time is the final period of indignation in verse 17. So I want you to notice that the time of the end is equivalent or synonymous with the final period of indignation. The final period of indignation and the time of the end are one. Keep that in mind. Now, as I said, most commentators believe that this vision pertains to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC. And I'd like to state up front that that is most understandable why commentators take that. And most commentators do. 
But I'd like to make the case this morning that Daniel 8 is actually not about Antiochus and the time of the Maccabees. Even though most commentators believe it is, I'd like to make the case this morning that this does not apply to the time of Antiochus and the time of the Maccabees. Now, why do people believe that it pertains to the time of Antiochus? Here's the two basic reasons. Number one, the vision seems to lead us there, doesn't it? It starts with Persia, the, the ram, and then all of a sudden this goat comes and takes Persia out. That's, that's said to be Greece. Alexander's horn is broken. Four horns rise out of Alexander's kingdom, which we all recognize are the division of Alexander's kingdom. And then in verse 9, as well as verse 23, it seems to imply that it says here, in the latter period of their rule, this, this one of the four, uh, one of the kingdoms that rules after Alexander, one of the four divisions of the empire, a king will arise. And so the, the, the vision in Daniel 8 seems to bring us up to the time of the Greeks and the time of Antiochus. And I think that's, that does seem to be the case, right? That's what it does seem to say. And so it's very understandable why people would think this is talking about Antiochus. It seems to lead us to him chronologically. Secondly, the, the details of this vision seem to fit Antiochus' reign and Antiochus' career. You've got the, like I said, the trampling down of the host of Israel, the magnifying himself against God and doing war against God, the taking away of the sacrifice and the trampling down of the sanctuary. Hey, that all seems to have happened at the time of Antiochus. He did those very things. It, it seems to fit. So it leads us up to that time, and it seems to fit those details. That is why most commentators believe this is indeed talking about Antiochus. Now here's why the reasons I'd argue this morning why this is not the right time. And again, the important thing about this vision is understanding its time. Number one, the angel tells Daniel that the vision pertains to the time of the end. And the time of the end is the final period of indignation. And Antiochus, as I'm going to argue, is not, was not the time of the end, nor was Antiochus the final period of indignation. That is, after Antiochus, Israel had lots more indignation that came upon them. I can just name one, but there's many more. In, in, in the time of the Romans, they were still conquered by the Romans, and then the Romans came in the, and were... Uh, Jesus makes it very clear that the Romans were going to desolate the temple and the Romans were going to desolate Israel because of the wrath of God that was coming upon Israel for their sins. And so according to what Gabriel says to Daniel, this is the time of the end and the final period of indignation that would not fit with the period of Antiochus. We need to keep in mind that the theme of God's indignation is a major theme in the Old Testament. The very word indignation in the Hebrew is used in the law of Moses when God says, if you sin against the covenant, I'm going to come against you in my indignation. And all throughout the book of Isaiah, you find this major theme of God's indignation that because of Israel's law keeping, God's hand is stretched out against Israel in wrath and anger and indignation. 
but Isaiah himself prophesies that there's coming a day when God's indignation will be withdrawn from Israel and he will save them from the enemies that he was bringing against them in his indignation. So because of his indignation, he, he punishes them with the rod of his anger, these nations, and because the indignation will go away and because of his grace and his salvation, he will then destroy the rod and the rods of his indignation. So it's a major theme, his indignation and his promise of deliverance from his indignation. And when there's no broken covenant, there's no indignation. When there is righteousness, there is no indignation and therefore no enemies against Israel. So the final period of indignation, these, these kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, they are all the tools or the rods of God's indignation against Israel. And the end of these kingdoms is therefore the end of the period of God's wrath and indignation. The, the phrase in the Hebrew, the time of the end, is eighth kates. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that quite right, but eighth kates, the time of the end. Turn with me to Daniel 11. As I said earlier in this sermon, these visions are all related, like Google Earth. There's clues that connect them to one another. And look at Daniel 11, verse 27. Daniel 11 is dealing with the very same events of Daniel chapter 8. And Daniel, I'd like to just show you some key verses in Daniel chapter 11 and chapter 12. Daniel 11, verse 27. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. That is, there's these two kings, and they both want to kill each other, and they're both trying to get the upper hand on each other and backstab each other. But it will not succeed. They won't get each other. For the end is still to come at the appointed time. There's a real emphasis in Daniel that the end is appointed by God. It's determined by God. It's set. It's, it's not contingent. God has an end determined. Verse 35 some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. Now, that in the Hebrew is eighth kates, the exact same phrase as in Daniel chapter 8. Even though the New American Standard translates it the end time, you could translate it the time of the end. Until the eighth kates, because it is still to come at the appointed time. So I'd like to point this out to, to say that what Daniel 11 is talking about is the eighth kates as well as Daniel 8. That Daniel 8, that Gabriel says, this vision's about the eighth, eighth kates. It's about the end time. And in Daniel 11, it is also about the end time. Look at verse 40. At the eighth kates, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships, and will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. So again, we're referring to the time here of the end. Look at chapter 12, verse 4, which this vision runs into this. As for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the eighth cates, the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Look at verse 6. 
One said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end, the eighth of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever it would be for a time, times and a half time. That's the same uh, figure that we saw in Daniel 7, right? As soon as they had finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the eighth cates, or the end time. In verse 13, as for you, go your way to the end, the eighth, you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the eighth of the age, at the end of the age. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to another very important phrase in chapter 11. Look at verse 36 of chapter 11. The king will do as he pleases. Now, just to give a little context, from verse 21 of chapter 11 all the way into chapter 12, there's this single figure king that is in view. And I'd like to make the case that this king of verse 21 to the end of the chapter is the same as the little horn, who's persecuting and trampling on the host, and who's, it, he says in this very chapter, he, he removes the sacrifice, he magnifies, magnifies himself against God, all the same details of chapter 8. Verse 36, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. Now, I'll, I'll comment on this in just a moment. He will prosper until what? Until what? Until the indignation is finished. So here we've got in chapter 11, this is regarding the, the end of time, and this is also regarding that final period of indignation. This guy is doing what he's doing because of God's indignation, but when God's indignation is over, this guy's done. For that which is decreed will be done, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show any regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. Do you know that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul quotes this passage. The Apostle Paul quotes it as still future. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to know that the coming of the Lord will not take place until the man of sin is revealed, who will, future, exalt himself above all gods and magnify himself above even God himself. So Paul sees this as still future. So my point here is Daniel 11 and Daniel 8 are talking about the same time, the end time and the final period of indignation. And this leads me to my next point, that the details of chapter 8 as well as chapter 11 do not fit Antiochus, even though Antiochus resembles generally this time, and there's no doubt that he does, because in Antiochus you have a man who's persecuting Israel and desecrating the temple. So there is clearly a resemblance, and that's why most, co most commentators who do believe in a future Antichrist believe Antiochus is a type or a pattern of the Antichrist. But even though he resembles it, he, he does resemble this time, he is actually quite different. I'm going to give you a few points. Number one, 2,300 days of the regular sacrifice being trampled upon does not fit the time of Antiochus as 
all commentators and scholars will, will acknowledge. We actually have the exact day that Antiochus desecrated the temple. It was in the month of Kislev in the 15th day in, one, in 167 BC. And we have the exact day when the temple was restored and purified, which is celebrated by the Jews uh, on, the, on Hanukkah. And that was in the month of Kislev, the 25th day, 164 BC. We have the exact days, which is exactly three years and 10 days, which is not 2,300 days. All scholars and commentators admit this. Most commentators will say, well, this is not supposed to be taken exactly. It's just close, but it's not really that close at all. And we would argue that it is meant to be taken exactly. God is the all-knowing God. Why wouldn't he give the exact figure if it was meant to be that time? So, the two, so first of all, the, two, the 2,300 days doesn't fit the time of Antiochus. If you go back to chapter 8, in verse 9, this is another thing that many scholars will point out, that Antiochus didn't grow exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. First of all, he didn't grow toward the beautiful land. He inherited the beautiful land because the beautiful land, which is Israel, the land of Israel, was already a part of the Seleucid Empire. When he came to power, he inherited that. He did grow towards Egypt, and he did grow toward the east. But we wouldn't say that he grew exceedingly great toward those areas because his conquests were, uh, were actually failures. That he did go into Egypt and take over, but then the Romans kicked him out in humiliation. He did go east, but he was defeated going east, and then he actually died in the east of being basically heartbroken for all of his failures in his kingdom. So... Daniel chapter 8 tells us that the ram and the he-goat were great, and then it tells us that this little horn was exceedingly great. But when you look at history, Antiochus was not exceedingly great compared to the Persians and compared to Alexander. It just doesn't seem to fit exactly. As one scholar says about Antiochus, the net results of what Antiochus accomplished in these three geographical spheres was rather negligible and even negative in some cases. Thus, he does not fit well the specifications of this prophecy which states that the little horn was to grow exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. In verse 23 of chapter 8, the vision says that it will be in the latter period of their rule. And it seems to imply their rule being the rule of the four generals or the four kingdoms that arose after Alexander. In the latter period of their rule, this little horn will arrive. But we might ask, was Antiochus in the latter end of their rule? There were 30 Seleucid kings. The Seleucid Empire lasted from the death of Alexander to the, to the takeover by Rome in 63 BC. So the Seleucid Empire actually lasted for about 260 years, the Seleucid Empire. There were 30 Seleucid kings in all, and Antioch's Epiphany, Epiphanes was the eighth. The empire lasted well over 100 years after he died. Antiochus, you would say that he, was, he actually reigned before the halfway mark in the days of the Seleucid Empire. So could we say that Antiochus was 
we raised in the latter period of their, their rule, it just doesn't seem to fit. Look at verse 25. At the end of verse 25, the vision, the angel tells us that Antiochus will be broken, or sorry, not Antiochus, the little horn will be broken without human agency, or a better translation from the Hebrew would be without human hand, without hand. Now it is true that Antiochus did not die in battle. It is true that he wasn't assassinated and nobody came and stabbed him in the back. Antiochus died of sickness and, and the Jews all recognized that God is the one who smote him with the sickness. Of course, however anyone dies, everything is because of God, right? Whatever happens is because of God's agency. But as I've pointed out before, the, the term without hand, which is what the Hebrew is here, is an idiom. And this idiom doesn't just mean that he'll die of natural causes, say not in battle and not by a sword, he'll, die, he'll be sick and die. But the idiom without hand, it means direct supernatural agency. So when something happens without hand, like the kingdom is cut out without hand, or God doesn't dwell in temples made without hands, this idiom means it is by God's direct supernatural agency. Not just without human hand, but by God's direct hand. And if you turn with me to Lamentations chapter 4, this is illustrated very clearly here in Lamentations, which is right before Ezekiel. Right before Ezekiel. Uh, Lamentations 4 verse 6. Fascinating verse. Because <clears throat> certainly everything is by the agency of God. Everything is by the agency of God. But the idiom implies more. In the Lamentations 4, verse 6, this is Jeremiah sitting in the dust of the ruins of Jerusalem. And here's what he says. The iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands were turned against her. And so basically, uh, Jeremiah is actually saying that Sodom was destroyed without hand, not so Jerusalem. Sodom was destroyed how? by sickness and famine and disease? No, Sodom was destroyed by fire and brimstone coming out of heaven. Not so we, Jerusalem. We weren't destroyed in directly supernatural way by God, although, of course, God is the one who's behind this, but God is using the Babylonians to crush us and to destroy us. Was Antiochus destroyed without hand? It doesn't seem so. You could, you could say no, because though he wasn't destroyed by sword, he wasn't destroyed directly by a supernatural act of the agency of God. Remember in chapter 11, verse 36 and 37, it said that he will exalt himself above all gods and he will not have any desire for women. Antiochus does not fit that either. Antiochus did not exalt himself above all gods. In fact, he dedicated the temple of Jerusalem to Zeus, the god of his fathers. It says in Daniel 11... Daniel 11, 36 and 37, he'll show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Antiochus did show regard for the gods of his fathers. He'll show no regard for women. Antiochus had regard for women. 
Antiochus was married and even had concubines. Daniel chapter 12 leads us to, shows us that this period that ends the final indignation results in the resurrection of the righteous. At the time of Antiochus, there was no resurrection of the righteous. The point is we could point out so many more details in chapter 8 and chapter 11 that show us that the details simply don't fit with Antiochus, even though Antiochus generally resembles these times. And when we deal with prophecy, brothers and sisters, we need to not just get swept away with general resemblances, but we need to make sure we're, we're seeing what the text is actually saying. Interesting quote from Jer Jerome in the fourth century. I've quoted Jerome before saying that most commentators in his day believe that the prophecies of Daniel are not relating to the past, but they're relating to the future. And Jerome says this, most of our commentators refer this passage, he's referring to Daniel chapter 8, to Antichrist and hold that that which occurred under Antiochus was only by way of a type which shall be fulfilled under Antichrist. Interesting. So the ancient expositors are basically saying the same thing as I'm saying this morning. Well, what about 23? Daniel 8, 23. How do we explain that the future Antichrist, the future man of sin, the future events that are resembling Antiochus' day, how are we to account that they come out of the latter period of what looks like the Greeks' rule? Hasn't the Greeks' rule passed? And to this, I would admit that it is a difficulty but not a dilemma. A difficulty, but not a dilemma. By that I mean this. We can be confident that it is established that this doesn't refer to Antiochus, but it refers to the future. But that doesn't mean there aren't kinks and complications in this view. We do know it's not talking about Antiochus, nor anyone who's ever arisen in history, and it's talking about the future. But how are we to account for verse 23 that says in the latter period of their rule that the Antichrist will arise? This is indeed a difficulty. Commentators who take this as future suggest that perhaps the Antichrist will arise out of the borders of the Seleucid Empire. They suggest that Antichrist will arise out of the borders of one of those four kingdoms. That's one way they deal with it. I'm not saying that is correct or it's wrong. but that God has a way of revealing these things as time goes on that perhaps we'll understand later and we'll see how, it, in fact, the Antichrist arose out of this time. I'd just like to say it's a complication. It is a difficulty with that view. But it's not a dilemma because here's why. One might say, well, why don't you say this? Why don't you say verse 23 limits the time when this Daniel 8 could happen? Why don't you say... It's clear in verse 23 that this little horn arises out of the latter period of their rule, which limits this vision to the time of the Greeks. And so you're wrong, Eli, in saying that this is future. Everything else is a complication. And this is clear. This is where it, the buck stops in verse 23. But I can't go down that way because 
friends, history has come and gone. If this, if this is the limitation, if verse 23 limits Daniel 8 to the time of the Greeks, there's simply no instance during the time of the Greeks that the details of these visions occurred. Which is why I say we rather must place it in the future and say, yeah, this is a difficulty, but not a dilemma, because God can clear this up in the future. There's some food for thought for you guys. You know, take, as I said, be a Berean. Take what I'm saying, investigate it, think about it, mull over it. And uh, don't just take what I'm saying to be fact, but think about it. But this is, what, this is what I think is the most reasonable way to take chapter 8. I'd like to close this morning by drawing this parallel. Last week I said that what we think about Israel determines what we think about our eschatology. And that is not a controversial statement. Everyone would agree with that. Certainly what we think about Israel is going to determine what we think about our eschatology. I argued last week that our eschatology is all about the gospel. Eschatology is all about the gospel because eschatology is all about Israel's salvation, the national salvation of Israel, when the indignation against that people comes to an end because Israel becomes righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And so our salvation in an in individual scope is just a picture of their salvation on a national scope and vice versa. We learn from the story of Israel that God has indignation because of sin and God sends enemies against Israel because of sin. And when we parallel that with our own lives, we learn that God has indignation because of all of our sin as well. The Bible teaches us that the wrath of God is upon all men for their unrighteousness. And because God has wrath for us, he sends an enemy. And what is that enemy that God sends against us, according to the Bible? The enemy that God sends against us, there's many. You can sum it up in this. The enemy that God sends against you and against I and against individuals and against all mankind because of our sin is death. Death is that enemy. And the Bible tells us that the wages of our sin is death. And this is because of the wrath and the indignation of a holy and a righteous and a just God against sinful men and sinful women. We should look at Israel's story and we should see ourselves in that story and not gloat at them and say, what's wrong with those people? But we should say, you know, I'm not any better than they are. And in fact, I'm dying because of the indignation of God. And only when that wrath is gone will I be saved from this enemy of death. And only when my sin is gone and only when my unrighteousness is gone will God's wrath and indignation be gone and therefore my enemy will be gone. And we should learn from Israel's history that you cannot get rid of your enemy by bypassing righteousness. You can't say, I'm going to just overlook the covenant. I'm just going to overlook righteousness. I'm not going to try to be, uh, to be righteous before God. I see that there's an enemy coming against me. I'm going to turn to Egypt, and I'm going to turn to Assyria, and I'm going to build up a bigger army, and then maybe we'll be able to stop this enemy from destroying us. And that never works because the enemy is the tool in God's hand, and God will always foil your attempts because God is God and you are not. There is no possible way for human beings to bypass the question of righteousness to solve the dilemma of death. And men have tried it for so many 
years and they're still trying. Maybe we can make a better world. Maybe we can get rid of all the deserts and all the wildernesses and solve all the hunger problems and solve all the sicknesses in the world and solve all the death problems in the world. Maybe we can find the, uh, the potion that will make us all live forever. Maybe we can perfect the world and reverse the curse and bypass the whole question of righteousness and God will never let that happen, ever. Because when we start to think we succeed, God has a million and one ways of destroying our efforts, doesn't he? We cannot bypass the issue of righteousness, nor can we deal with our sin. Nor can we say, okay, I get it. I have to get righteousness in order to turn away the wrath of God. But try and try and try as you will. You will not be righteous by your own works. You will not be righteous by your own efforts. Learn a lesson from the story of Israel. Even when they stopped trying to bypass righteousness, the Apostle Paul says they tried day and night to establish their own righteousness, and it doesn't work. Because God's righteousness is perfection, and we all have a problem, the Bible says, within each and every one of our souls, and that is sin. And that is when there's the right thing to do, you don't do it even though you know it's the right thing to do, and even though the part of you wants to do that right thing to do, there is a problem within your heart and your soul and your core called sin. And that is why you do the things that you know are wrong. You are not a good person, and you cannot escape your own sinfulness. What we deserve is death. And this is what we learn from the story of Israel. They don't deserve salvation. They deserve death. And there's never going to be a time in Israel's history where they do a few things that God says, hey, now you deserve life. The story of Israel is one that shows us very clearly that mankind deserves death. But in the light of us being the enemies of God, in the light of us deserving death and the wrath of God, and in the light of us being helpless, the Bible tells us that the good news is that despite our sin, God is a God of great love for sinners. God is a God of great grace for the unrighteous. God is a God of incomparable mercy. And in his incomparable and inexhaustible mercy, God sends to a sinful world his son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, to save us. God sends his son to save unrighteous people and to save an unrighteous nation. And it's through the death of Christ Jesus facing our enemy and allowing our enemy to devour him, even though God has no wrath for Jesus. God has no indignation for him. He's got indignation for us, and he sends an enemy against us, and Jesus steps in and takes upon himself that enemy that was for us and bears the indignation of God for us. And it's by his sacrifice and by his doing that our sins are dealt with and that God's indignation is turned away and that righteousness comes in and life and blessing and salvation. This is a glorious, glorious thing, is it not? And because of what Jesus has done, the Bible tells us that all who believe, all who believe, their sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. If you are a Christian this morning, your sins are removed. If you have put your faith in what Jesus has done, you are not, in the eyes of God, unrighteous. And God does not have 
wrath or indignation or anger for you, nor any enemy for you. The Bible tells us in John 3.36 that he who believes on the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe on the Son does not have life, and the wrath of God abides on him. And the amazing thing is just as this enemy in Daniel chapter 8, this rod of God's indignation, when Israel is finally righteous, when the indignation goes away because righteousness is brought in for that nation and God's wrath is no more, the enemy of Israel will be destroyed without hand, will be destroyed in a direct and supernatural way. And so it is with us as well that when you put your faith in Christ and are righteous and God's indignation is gone, the enemy that God sent against you in his indignation, which is death, is destroyed without hand. And brothers and sisters, this will be manifested and demonstrated on the day that Jesus Christ returns and Jesus said, I will raise him up on the last day. This is not going to be a bunch of scientists dig up your bones and DNA and recreate you because they clone you. This is going to be a direct supernatural, supernatural intervention of God in reversing death and bringing you back to life from the grave and triumphing over your enemy death, proving that you are righteous and not unrighteous through Jesus Christ. This is true for us, and it will one day be true for the unrighteous nation of Israel. And one day these prophecies will be fulfilled and the things that aren't understandable will be made clear and we'll all agree on eschatology in that day. And we will all rejoice and we will all say what Isaiah says Israel will say on that day. And I'll close with this. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures of truth that constantly point us to the great issues of righteousness, indignation, and salvation. And we thank you most of all for your, your son, Jesus Christ, that you sent to save us and to bring in everlasting righteousness and salvation for us. We thank you, Lord, that it is through him and not through our own efforts and our own worthiness that you've done this. Help us today, I pray, to rejoice that you are our salvation and fill our hearts, Lord, with the knowledge of your great love for us Help us to rejoice today in your amazing love and in your amazing salvation. Lord, you truly are worthy of our praise. We give you glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.